Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. May God bless the reading of his word. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual authorities, spiritual forces. This is an odd thing to American ears mostly. Some of you, many of you would remember Richard and Rachel, who were in our midst and then went to Taiwan. You know, we had this we have this five year emphasis, five year focus for our congregation where we're encouraging people to use their vocations for God. So we're encouraging high school and college students to choose a vocation where they can use their gifts that will have an impact for God and among people in the world. Uh, We're encouraging people who are already in mid-career to think about how can I use this current career at this current company in this current town, how can I use the opportunities this career provides to serve God more effectively, to be his witness and his tool, his instrument. And then we're encouraging some people to think about how they can use their current careers somewhere else where the need is greater. And then, uh, you know, we're also considering, encouraging some to consider how they might change careers to go into vocational Christian ministry, uh, missions or pastoral ministry. So Richard and Rachel took the third of the options, they, they said, you know, basically, given the fact that we have these skills and this background and, and this training, where can we be more useful? So they went to Taiwan to work among blue collar. Well, to keep their jobs, to work at their usual jobs, uh, uh, either med school or uh, as a doctor or, or medical informatics, and then also to use their spare time to be involved in ministry among the blue collar. And one of Richard's letters back, he mentioned, he asked us to pray that he'd learn more about the spirit world. So realizing this is 
is a dimension of life I really had to learn more about when I went to over to Asia. I wrote back and asked him what he had in mind, and, and this is his reply. The number one thing that has surprised me about living in Taiwan is the spirit world's impact on daily life here, regardless of whether you're religious or not. It's part of life here among the modern skyscrapers and the factories making the Apple products and, and the cutting-edge research. There's zero conflict between science and spirits here. I've noticed that PhDs will drop off their clothes to be blessed at the temple and then go to work on their molecular biology and then pick up their clothes from the temple after work. People will go to see spirit mediums to get answers and for healing, even if they're well-educated. I do not notice a spirit, spiritual secular divide here. Now, that's neither good nor bad. It's just different, way different. Everyone believes in spirits, ghosts, and things you can't see. And it doesn't have anything to do with how much money you have, your training, your education, your social status, etc. It's part of the fabric of Taiwan, and it feels like it's in the air. I find that to be way different than the U.S., where there's this assumption that to truly believe in a spiritual world, to the point where it affects your thoughts and activities, is considered antiquated. The assumption that the spirit world is very uh, real is kind of neat, though. You don't have to waste your time convincing the average Taiwanese person that demon possession and angels and things like that exist. All the passages in the Bible where it talks about Satan being a roaring lion, no problem for Taiwanese. Demon possession, they can relate to that, either personally or many people know somebody that it happened to, or a friend of a friend. On the news, a young guy committed suicide, and the news said that the operating theory is that he was possessed by an evil spirit that he couldn't shake off. The Taiwanese that I've met digest it with no problems, no questions asked. I think there would be a lot of questions back in Boston. Is this real? Is this literal? Does it still happen today? Do we even see this in the U.S.? He said, I've met only one atheist here in Taiwan, and he immigrated from Shanghai. I'd say 95% of people here believe in spirits. I, uh, many say they've encountered a ghost personally. He continues, I personally have not encountered a ghost, a hungry ghost, or a spirit, and I hope not to. But the things I've wondered about are my nagging health issues since I've been here. I just can't seem to get healthy. Our baby girl never sleeps well when we have prayer meeting. It's, it's weird. I've had more nightmares this year than I ever had before. And I honestly don't know what to make of this. But several of the senior missionaries have advised us not to underestimate the reality of the spirit world in our daily lives. Satan does not like for the gospel to advance, and all Christians are signed up for a battle, so why are we surprised when a battle is what we get? But you know, They say don't go looking for it, but if you're here long enough, you'll encounter it. They say to fear God, but beware of Satan as opposed to the contrary. You know, this is a huge difference 
between, you could say, the modernized West and most of the rest of the world, whether it be Asia or Africa or Latin America. We have what one anthropologist has termed the flaw of the excluded middle. Even if we're Christians, we believe in in a higher world, a spiritual world, and we believe in a physical world, but the two don't overlap, even for Christians often in the West. So there's this excluded middle territory where the two might overlap. Now, if you remember back to Easter, you know, when we looked at the, a book by Alan Lightman, The Accidental Universe, what we see is that you know, there's tremendous advances through science in explaining a lot of the phenomena of our world. And because science has been so effective at explaining physical phenomena, we often suppose that science can explain everything, and anything that science can't explain is superstition or unreal. Because science does such a great job at working with empirical data, anything for which there is no empirical data suddenly becomes excluded as imaginary. Now, Alan Lightman himself describes, you know, in his dual appointment as a professor of science and a professor of humanities, he, he describes, you know, the, own, the tension he feels within himself. He's, as a scientist, sure, he can explain a lot of empirical data, but science can't explain things like aesthetics, or love, or altruism, or morality, or meaning in life. And science can't extend itself to the supernatural and explain the phenomena or the experience of spirits and demons and spiritual reality as a whole. And so the, the danger is that because the, we don't have concrete empirical data, which we can definitively attribute to the spirit world, that we'll discount these things altogether. Now, there's another danger on the other side, particularly in Asia, is that when we believe in spirits, anything we don't understand, we'll ascribe to spirits. And so when somebody has a nervous breakdown, it's easier in Asia to say that somebody put a curse on them and take them to the temple to consult a medium who will go into a trance and tell you how to break this curse, generally by submitting to a higher demon, more powerful demon than the one that put the curse on them. So we can over-spiritualize the world in Asia, or we can under-spiritualize it in America. So we turn to Scripture this morning to get some kind of guidance, because Scripture clearly affirms the existence of a spirit world. But the main message of Scripture is that we don't have to fear this spirit world because our God rules over it. Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Now, Ephesians 6 is a very familiar passage, and we won't start there. We'll get there eventually. But if you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, there's a lot going on Ephesians, in Ephesians about spiritual warfare which we miss simply because we don't know and the translators didn't know the lingo, the language that Paul is using is spiritistic sort of language and they don't pick it up. So we want to look at some of the earlier parts. But first we'll think back to the book of Acts chapter 19. 
the first experience of the Ephesians with the gospel went like this. The apostle Paul was in the city of Ephesus. He went and he, he went there to preach the gospel. While he was there, there were Jews who went around driving out evil spirits as best they could. Uh, the whole world believed in evil spirits in the first century. And every religion practiced casting out evil spirits, exorcism. And the key in the ancient times to casting out demons was to have the name of a powerful God. Well, you had to have the powerful God, but you had to have the name. And you would use the name of that God to cast out the demon. Now, as it happened, some Jews went around and they saw Paul casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they said, well, this is a powerful name. And so this Jewish exorcist used the name of Jesus. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Now, this makes perfect sense within their paradigm. They would use any name. It could be a Greek God, Egyptian God, Jewish gods. It could be Christian God. So they see Paul using the name of Jesus and the demons fleeing. So they take the name of Jesus and they try to cast out the demons. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. And one day this evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know. Paul I know about. Who are you? And then the man with the spirits jumped up and beat up these seven guys and they ran away. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those who believed in Jesus, now note this, many of those who believed in Jesus now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their schools together, burned them publicly. When they calculated the values of the schools, the, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. 165,000 165, no, years of labor. So 50,000 drachmas is what a laborer would make 165 years of working. They had spent a lot of money. Here's what's going on. Sorcery. Here's what's going on. You know how it is in Asia. Uh, I mentioned it briefly. If you, ha if you have some kind of crisis and you want help with the spirits, you go to the temple, you make an offering, the medium gets, goes into trance, is possessed by their possessing deity, and then gives you the remedy. Often it's a charm. Or you'll have books of incantations, and you can buy these things in the ancient world. So this is what we call, what the text calls sorcery, really is looking to the spirit world for help in dealing with demons. That's all it is. It's, it's not whether the magic or sorcery. It's not an inherently bad intention thing. It's I've got trouble with demons. I need help. So you buy a, a book of incantations. And we still have them today from the trash heaps. They've survived over the years, over the millennia. And we still have translations and copies of these things where they would call on the names of the de deities. So they would buy paraphernalia, they would buy charms, they would buy amulets, they would buy pieces of jewelry to carry on your person to protect you from the spirits, they would buy books of magical incantations to protect you from the spirits. And the, Ephesus was known as a headquarters for this sort of thing. So if Paul is going to go to Ephesus and preach the gospel, it's inevitable that he's going to face it. They were famous in the ancient world for magical charms and incantations. So Paul goes and preaches the gospel. 
Now, notice that phrase. Many of those who believed now came. You see, what they're trying to do is, people are coming to Christ, they're putting their faith in Christ, but they're still living in this world with filled of spirits. And they're afraid. They're putting their faith in Christ, but they're not stopping the magic, the sorcery, the mediums. They're not stopping that stuff. They're trying to stay safe. The only way they've ever known how. So they believe in Jesus as well as practicing magic. And then they see... You know, this, Paul casts out demons, the name of Jesus is powerful, and then they see these seven sons of Siva engaging in what you could call mediumship. You know, they, they use the name of Jesus and they get beat up. And suddenly the light goes off. It, it's not the name of Jesus. It's not the incantation. It's not the charm. It's not the magical formula. It's Jesus, this Jesus we worship, has power over these demons we fear. We don't need these magical incantations. We don't need these amulets. We don't need these charms. We don't need these books anymore. And so many of those who believed, Christians, now came. And they openly confessed that they'd been using this magic. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought all their scrolls together. They burned them publicly. And 165 years worth of labor went up in smoke. And the word of the Lord spread. Sounds like a great advance. People that were trying to worship Jesus but still afraid of the demons now are liberated from their fear of the demons and they worship Jesus. But... But you remember there was a riot soon, and Paul left. Now, you read any book about demon possession or spiritism overseas, and you'd see it immediately. It's not part of our worldview, so we don't understand this problem. But we, we can put ourselves in their shoes. Here are these Ephesians, worshiping Jesus. They finally had the courage to burn all their protection, to burn all this stuff that kept them safe from the demon world. Then Paul leaves. The one person they knew that could cast out demons, the one person who taught him how to deal with all this stuff, he flees. Now what have they done? They've just burned all their stuff. They've just said, we're no longer going to use this to manipulate the spirit world. We're no longer going to honor and worship these spirits. They've burned all this stuff. They know what that does is that makes the, ang the spirits angry. They've burned all this stuff. They've angered the spirits. And then the one person they're counting on, the Apostle Paul, he's left. What are they going to do now? So Paul writes him a letter in the midst of this crisis. And it's not just from Ephesians 6 that we can see how insecure they are. Paul writes them from a distance. In the midst of their experience, in the midst of their fear... In the midst of their tendency to go back to the spirit world, back to the charms, back to the mediums, Paul writes to them. And three times before chapter 6, and then in chapter 6, he addresses their fear. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Look at how we've overlooked this. He's talking about the spirit world here. Paul talks in Ephesians 1.19, he refers to Jesus' incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he describes Jesus' great power. That power 
is the same as the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. That power is the power that raised Jesus and exalted Jesus. The resurrection and exalted power. And when Jesus was exalted, see verse 21? He was lifted above all rule and authority, all power and dominion. Every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. What is this language? All of these, in Greek, are terms that were used for the spirits and the demons in the first century. Every rule, every authority, every power, every dominion, every name that is named, all of these are references to demons and spirits and, and, and trying to use names to control demons and control spirits. And Paul says, Jesus... He didn't just rise from the dead and, and go off into heaven. Jesus is exalted as ruler over every demon, over every spirit, over every authority. And Paul just heaps one synonym on another synonym because he says, I don't care what you call him. Jesus is greater than all of them. God placed all things under his feet. And appointed in him behold, behold, um, behead over everything for the church. So we have, first of all, Paul tells the Ephesians, you have the resurrected, exalted power of Jesus. The Jesus who is above every spirit, every ruler, every authority, every demon. This Jesus is working for you, for his church. The power of the resurrected, exalted Jesus above all demons. Then in chapter 2, then Paul talks on for a little while, and then chapter 2, he comes back to this theme. You can see it's pervasive in the letter because it's pervasive in their experience, this fear of demons. In chapter 2, he says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Before you knew God, you were dead, spiritually dead. You used to live this way, transgressions and sins. Notice, when you followed the ways of the world, but not just the ways of the world, when you followed the ways of the world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of, deserving of wrath because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Notice verse 2. You used to live when you followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What's his point is, before we come to faith in Christ, we're captured by Satan, by the spirit world, by the demons. We can't see God's mercy in Christ. We don't understand his grace toward us. This is spiritual darkness imposed by spirit beings. And Paul said, God entered that darkness and freed you from that prison. And this is the second power we have in our lives to free us from fear of the demons. You once were subjects of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work and those who are disobedient. But God freed you from that. 
So Paul says, you don't have to fear spirits. First of all, because Jesus was resurrected and exalted, and he is now seated on his throne above all the demons. You don't have to fear spirits, he says. Secondly, because God has already freed you from them. If you hadn't been freed from them, you wouldn't have come to faith in the first place. And then in chapter 3, Paul returns to the theme for a third time. As he's praying for the Ephesians, notice what he says in 3.14. For this reason, I, I know, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Eh? Every family in heaven, on earth. There's no marriage and giving a marriage in heaven. What Paul is referencing here is again the notion of a demon or spirit world. He's, Every group of beings, every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Remember the use of names and magic and incantations. Paul's again making a reference to the spirit world here. And he says, I pray for you, verse 18, that you may have power with all of God's people to grasp how wide and how long and how deep and how high is the love of Christ. All of this language, again, was used of the spirit world. The height, the depth, the width, the length. All of this language was used of spirits. And Paul says, the height and the depth and the width and the length, these are not references to the spirit world. These are references to the love of Jesus. The spirit world is subsumed under the love of Jesus. This is what you need to know. Not the height and depth and length and of the demon world, but the height and length and depth of Jesus and his love for us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us. Notice it's not the power of the spirit world. It's the power of the working of Christ in us. To him be glory, now and forever. So we have, at least, Paul says, these first power, the power of the resurrected and exalted Christ, dominion over the spirits, the power of Christ who liberated us, in our conversion. The power of the love of Christ versus the hostility of the demon world. And then he turns to Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Then he says, we have the power of the resurrected and exalted Christ. We have the power that freed us and brought us to faith. We have the power of the love of Christ in God for us. Then, in this power, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, all references to the spirit world, all references to demons. And Paul says, these things exist. They are real. And they are dangerous, but they are not dangerous to us. We can take our stand. Notice, he doesn't say we launch battle against them. But he says, he uses the military metaphor, not for launching battle, but he says, we can stand our ground when they assault us. We can take our stand because of the resurrected, exalted power of Jesus, because we've been freed through our conversion, because the love of Christ is stronger, we can take our stand 
as we put on the full armor of God. When the day of evil comes, stand your ground. After you've done everything, stand. We can face, we can endure, we can stand. He says it's important then with the, the, the whole, the belt of truth, all these metaphors, it's important, righteousness is important, justification, virtue, the gospel, trusting in God's salvation. He talks about all of these aspects of Christian disciplines, Christian conduct. They are important tools in our arsenal. But this is a battle we can stand up to. We can hold our ground. Because the resurrected and exalted Christ is above every spirit. Because Christ has already freed us from the spirit when he brought us to faith. Because the love of Christ is more powerful than the fear of demons. In all of these ways, we can stand our ground as we live for Christ and live in Christ. I mentioned Martin Luther some weeks ago in conjunction with his uh, OCD and his, you know, his uh, struggle with sin and his overscrupulous personality. But Martin Luther saw that. His tendency toward, toward depression and toward obsessive compulsive behavior, he saw that as instruments of Satan against him to discourage him and beat him down. He was also under death threats and he saw that fear as a tool of Satan to silence him and stop the Reformation and discourage him and beat him down. And out of that experience, he wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Listen to the words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. A mighty fortress is our God, a wall of defense that never fails. He's our helper amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. The power and craft of this ancient foe are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. If we confided in our own strength, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It's he, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heavenly armies is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Though this world be filled with devils and they should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Let's pray together.